we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions are generally on topics like science and COVID, but really they can go anywhere that the conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased today to introduce today's guest, Dr. Robert Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is a board-certified anesthesiologist practicing in Maryland. He did his bachelor's degree in history from Duke University and then completed medical training, residency, etc. at the University of Virginia with a special emphasis on cardiac anesthesia and echocardiography. Dr. Sullivan reads voraciously on a wide variety of topics, and among his avocations is aerial circus arts, which he's just going to have to tell us what that is and how he came to be doing it. So, Rob, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Well, I'll I'll first explain aerial circus arts. Um, I'll I'll admit it's it's an unusual choice for a middle-aged man, Um, but that involves... um, uh, performing aerial dance um, on silks that are hung 20 to 24 feet in the air. And I got into that by accident. That was, I thought was an aerial yoga class, but it was not. And I stayed with it and I've been practicing six years now. So this was something you thought you could do in some fashion after you, you made the mistake of what it turned out to be. Oh gosh, no, because I'm afraid of heights. And um, (laughs) so you don't do the part. (laughs) <laughs> no. And so I uh, um, had flexibility from yoga and I thought I was in good condition. And this this course was another level, uh, but I stayed with it and very, very slowly over time um, developed more strength and could do more of the moves. And then about two years into it, they said, you know, it's also a performing arts school and I, I have uh, terrible stage fright. Um, so I did end up before COVID doing a uh, performance with the school. A, a circus performance in Frederick, Maryland. And it's one of the highlights of my life. And I will say it is the most nervous I've ever been. For me, it's much more difficult than medicine. Uh-huh. Um, but being on stage, it was a very uh, healing thing for me. I was a very sickly kid with asthma. Um, and so never had uh, confidence to be in front of people. And it was a magical moment. So uh, that's why I stay with it is um, it is a wonderful creative outlet. That's and it keeps really, me in good shape too. Yeah, really going outside of your comfort zone. Yes, yes. Which everybody should do in, in mild and safe ways on occasion, just for not only for the experience, but for the psychological benefit. I agree. So aside from that, then, um, we got connected together because of some other experiences that you've yes. had over the last few years. Yes. So it it's a... It's a difficult story to tell, both emotionally, but also just from the uh, medicine and physiology perspective. And I hope I can present it with clarity. And please stop me if I lapse into jargon or it's not clear at any point. Well, I'll try to translate it to English. That's okay. Please. Absolutely. Um, So 
the thing I'd like to talk about is perhaps one of the more obscure topics in medicine and perhaps one of the most boring. It's pulmonary hypertension. And it has nothing to do with arterial hypertension. It's totally opposite. Um, I guess I'll just back up and explain. Um, well, I'll just explain what happened to me, and then we can maybe dive into it from there. So I'm a, I was a frontline physician um, working in the hospital during COVID. My role was to keep an operating room open for emergencies and for labor and delivery. And we were definitely in the, th in the thick of COVID and exposed. And I will say I had um, some reservations when the vaccine was rolled out. Well, you had, did you have COVID during the first year before the vaccine? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So I had COVID probably very early on. Um, it swept through our OR probably in February of 2020, very early. It was even before we had tests for it, but clinically we had the dry cough. And, and for me, it was a, a month of a cold and some dry cough, but I recovered completely. Okay. Um, but there was worry around it because I, I would say to people, you don't really want a lung full of COVID and we'd occasionally get sick patients. And I have a story about that. Um, so I, I got, uh, the first round of vaccine in December I was one of the first group to get it. Um, initially I maybe was sick for a day from it. Um, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but this will bring it all back together because I think coronary hypertension is the thing that links COVID physiology, why people die from COVID it explains people with long COVID with shortness of breath. And I think it explains a lot of the um, vaccine injuries. And I think it explains a lot of the unexplained increased mortality that we have seen in the country in the last few years. So I had a very odd case after my first week of the vaccination. So I was performing an anesthetic. Um, the patient didn't look well, this person had a fracture, they were morbidly obese, and sort of a, a difficult anesthetic, but everything went fine. Um, no problems with intubating the patient. We turned this person on their side to perform the surgery, and they essentially died for a little bit. Turn modeled, there was um, a change in cardiac activity, lost um, oxygenation, and they stopped ventilating. And they it was very odd. Yes, lost their yeah, so lost their pulse was a code. And this is very odd. Normally you don't have this happen when you turn on your side. Um, so we turned the patient back on their uh, back and they recovered. And it was a very puzzling case. We did not perform the surgery, sent them to the hospital, and there they got diagnosed with uh, they were COVID positive and had the chest x-ray that was consistent with ground gas opacities. And it was a very puzzling case, and I was also very um happy I'd had my vaccine a week before because this patient hadn't been forthright with us. And so we had a big COVID exposure. Um, so everything goes fine. I get my follow-up vaccine three weeks later and I'm maybe less sick than I was after the first one. And I do fine for about three to four weeks, back to full activity, doing my circus arts um, and even skiing at high altitude. And I thought, wow, my conditioning is very good this year. And then about three weeks after that second vaccine, almost overnight, I, um, I developed shortness of breath just going upstairs. I was attempting to run on a treadmill and I just collapsed. I just, it just had this pressure in my chest I was, and there's just no way of pushing through it. And I did not know what was going on. 
but I knew something was very, very, very wrong. Um, my first thought was, oh, no, I've developed a, a, a cardiomyopathy probably from a virus. Um, but I, I, I can't really overemphasize how bad I felt. I mean, the fatigue was absolutely overwhelming. There was sort of a, a sort of a flu-like feeling with this. And even we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. I'd be having to take a breath every few words just to just to breathe. So I have a background in cardiac physiology. I have sought out a help from a cardiologist friend and got an echocardiogram. And I thought for sure my left heart wouldn't be pumping very well. And I'm I do these I used to do these studies, intraoperative echocardiography and so I, I know what I'm looking at so I'm looking at the study and my left heart is is pumping fine and I think oh my gosh I guess this is all in my head um, and then as part of the study they measure pressures in the pulmonary artery and there's a way of doing that by looking at the tricuspid valve and there's a very char characteristic whoosh that you hear if there is blood flowing the wrong way through a valve and I hear this and I think oh no and uh, I asked the technician doing this, what did you measure? And sh she told me the number. And there's a way of converting it to pressure. And it's simple math that is a math PhD you'd be able to do. But I knew in that moment um, what that portended. And I thought, well, on one hand, um, I'm relieved because it's not in my head. But I have pulmonary hypertension. And that's almost always fatal. And... So three weeks after, this is about five weeks after that second dose, I walked out of my own hospital uh, with my head spinning and a um, and essentially a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And but normally pulmonary hypertension is incremental. Yes, right. It's not. It doesn't happen in an acute way. You would have been no. probably tired for a month or two months or longer, even probably before you decided to think about it. Um. Well, my diagnosis was was with record speed, very quick. Um, I probably had my diagnosis within a week or less of falling ill. Um, and it wasn't an, an embolus of some kind? No, and that is the first thought, because the only time this would happen acutely with people is if you have a clot using a leg that breaks off and goes to a lung. And in order to get pulmonary hypertension in that setting, um, I mean, to back up, I mean, for people, and I for people who don't do medicine or for people that do do medicine, because it's a confusing topic, but um, pulmonary hypertension is so rare in that you, you can go through a career in medicine and maybe only see a few cases, maybe not at all. And the reason is when all the blood goes from the right heart to the left heart, it first goes through the lung, all of it. And it's probably the most amount of vasculature in the body. And there's so much of it that the blood flows through with almost without resistance. And, in order to develop a high pressure in the lungs, so much flow has to be compromised. Over half of the blood flow through the lung has to be compromised in some way to raise that pressure that um, if it happens acutely, it's only in the setting of where you've either taken out an entire lung by surgery or you have a big clot jamming up the lung. and Or you, you have a, a clotting problem where you have lots of small particulates that are clotting up the small vessels. You know, like Correct. Which generally had not been seen before COVID, um, uh, to my knowledge. So 
but the right heart is not used to pumping against that kind of pressure. And so in the case of a sudden pulmonary hypertension it had not really been described ever before, because I think by the time you meet the diagnostic criteria for mild pulmonary hypertension, so-called mild pulmonary hypertension, which still only has a three-year survival rate. But if, you ha if that happens acutely, you're on death's door. Most people do not survive that. And the reason I led with the story of my aerial arts is it was probably the um, conditioning I'd done through that, which allowed me to pull through. Mm -hmm. Well, for most things, being in good physical shape is helpful for being in good physical shape and thinking that you can do anything physically and having an unknown myocarditis or pericarditis is actually a negative because if you know yes. all of the died suddenly cases have been on almost all professional athletes or heavy exercising amateur athletes yes because they've been pushing themselves against cardiac rhythm irregularities, spontaneous rhythm irregularities that occur because of the myocarditis. The myocarditis is essentially silent until it interrupts the heart rhythm, and then it, it's fatal or close to fatal. Agree. And so it's, you know, it's not something you would know about. And the fact nope. that these are high exercise people who are even more vulnerable to this than average people puts them at a disadvantage. But that, that's the only case I know of, of being at a disadvantage for being in good physical shape. Excellent point. For all the rest of us, you know, we just lug our excess weight around and, and don't think much about it. <laughs> so that I think the athletes are another key to what's happening here. So as you and I are having this conversation, we're pumping about five liters of blood from the right heart to the left heart in a minute. And the physiology of those two chambers is radically different. So the left heart, the fibers are in a circle. When it contracts, it generates the arterial pressure that pumps blood to the rest of the body. And it is about five or six times the mass of the right ventricle. The right ventricle is um, fibers oriented in a longitudinal fashion. It's much thinner and it's able to do move all the blood volume of the left heart, but much more efficiently at much lower energy use. And if your normal blood pressure might be 120 over 80, the right heart is pumping a pressure of maybe 20 over 10. So it works at a much lower pressure to move all that volume. And there's a reason for it. It allows you to change your F. You can stand up really quickly and not pass out. You can uh, start exercising and it absorbs the increased blood flow back to the uh, lungs. And there's also no gravity that it's pushing against. Correct. Correct. So most people, it, it, we have such, it, that system works so well that it almost never goes wrong unless uh, maybe some people who have smoked for a very long time um, can, can get into trouble over many decades. But generally, the right heart and the lungs work very happily. And it's... Um, Pulmonary hypertension is defined as a mean pressure in the system. It used to be at 25 millimeters of mercury. It's been now lowered to 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, when you exercise, like, so when someone uh, is doing some kind of exertional thing, 
um, particularly elite athletes, they may pump 25, 30, even 35 liters of blood a minute from the right heart to the left. So there's, there could be a liter of blood flowing every, um, every two seconds through the lungs, participating in oxygen exchange and, and, and carbon dioxide exchange. So even under those extreme situations, the pressure in the, in the system only goes up a little bit. So even someone that is at extremes of exertion may have a mean pulmonary pressure approaching 30. Um, and so super conditioned athletes may actually develop a little bit of right heart strengthening, um, which is considered good and adapted to that kind of activity. So for people that have pulmonary hypertension, what is happening is it's actually a problem with blood flow. Is blood just not, not going properly from the right heart to the left heart? What does make it to the left heart will be pumped um, efficiently, but it's essentially just a trickle of blood getting through. And what happens is just like if you were to kink a hose, the um, fluid, in this case, blood backs up in the right heart. Um, it's under higher pressure over time. And usually point of hypertension develops over years. The heart will adjust very slowly to this. Um, and usually only people come to attention. Mild point of hypertension might be just mild symptoms of shorter breath while doing exercise. Um, so not as dramatic as my presentation. So even though I had mild point of hypertension, I was presenting, um, it's almost somebody with end-stage pulmonary hypertension. I hope that explanation makes sense. Uh, it does. So we're actually at a commercial break point. So why don't we pause here and uh, we'll be back shortly. Everybody, please stay tuned. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Robert Sullivan. We were just talking about the definition of pulmonary hypertension as the blood being limited to getting through the lungs because of more resistance in the blood vessels going to the lungs and so therefore not filling up the left side of the heart which pumps the blood out to the rest of the body because the flow to the left side of the heart is more limited that comes back from the lungs um it strikes me that this you would would you see the same thing or something similar with the what is it the mitral valve 
that the that would also limit blood flow to the lungs, except in a different place in the flow. Sure. If if you have most of the most causes of right heart failure or pulmonary hypertension is because the left heart actually isn't pumping, or there could be a valve problem. Um, but anything that either jams up the lung vasculature or causes the arteries to overgrow um, or the case of chronic inflammation, which can be seen in um, uh, sometimes HIV um, or even uh, some drug use uh, can cause compromise of pulmonary vessels. Yeah. So there's five different classifications. It's very convoluted. Um, I even write about it and I get it mixed up all the time. I looked at it a half hour before and I still already forgotten it. It's that confusing. So one of the things, of course, is the vessels themselves being inflamed in the yeah. left side, the open, the open part, the inside of the vessels. If they get inflamed, then the inflammation sticks white cells and, and related debris that solidifies on the inside of the lining of, of the blood vessels that narrows their bore, their diameter. Could be, could be. So the, so I get this diagnosis. Um, I think it's related to the vaccine. I tell my cardiologist, I think this is related. He's like, why, how? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. So I researched this extensively and I find a paper written by a professor named Dr. Suzuki at Georgetown University that came out the month the vaccines were rolled out for the healthcare personnel. So this was published in Respiration in December 2020. And his interest was researching. Um, he's a world, world expert in pulmonary hypertension. He was he thought to research spike protein. And when I asked him later why, they, he knew that spike protein was fatal if you infused enough of it into animals, and they knew this um, after SARS-1. So he thought to use this in his model, and what he found is that spike protein was causing the arterial cells in the lung vasculature, pulmonary arterial uh, vascular cells, to divide when they shouldn't. And this seemed to be an inherent property of full-length spike protein uh, from COVID. Um, and he was raising a warning that using this in a vaccine, um, the full length, the part length one did not do it, but the full length one did cause a cell signaling and abnormal division. And he was raising the warning that pulmonary hypertension could be the result of using a spike protein and an mRNA vaccine platform. Hmm. Yeah. Hopefully the spike protein gets cleaved. It and, does. Yeah. If you're in cleavage site, but that's when it enters cells, right? Yes. And so the reason it's thought to happen, it all comes down to that ACE2 receptor, which um, was discovered after you and I left medical school. So the ACE2 receptor, which is the target of SARS 1, one natural coronavirus, one, the SARS 1, and SARS 2. And SARS 2 is amazingly adapted to the human ACE2 receptor. Not so amazing. It was designed that Not, way. I know, I know, I know. And so uh, I found that paper, the first novel bat uh, human coronavirus um, was invented in 2016 in uh, North Carolina with the Ralph Barrick lab and yes. Wuhan lab NIH. And I'm sure you're familiar with that paper. And so that was amazing uh, that the uh, that first virus uh, was a absolutely adapted to the human ACE2 receptor. 
And that has a lot of consequence that can be, that again goes back to explaining pulmonary hypertension is perhaps a unifying mechanism of what's going on um, in acute COVID and long COVID and vaccine injury because the ACE2 receptor is responsible for breaking down angiotensin 2, which again, for people who don't know medicine, very obscure, but they're blood medicine, ACE2, ACE inhibitors that are used to treat arterial blood pressure. But that ACE2 receptor does something very important, it turns out, is it, is it breaks down angiotensin 2 to angiotensin 1-7, which is the counter-regulatory hormone to angiotensin 2. And if you destroy that receptor, destroy the cells that have the receptor or block the receptor, then four things reliably happen. You will get arrhythmias, you'll get fibrosis, you get pulmonary hypertension, and you get clotting. And that explains a lot of COVID. And what seems to be happening is the uh, spike protein causes these two receptor to be taken up into the cell and essentially takes it out of play. So it, it binds to the ACE2 receptor and then, yes. it, and then it, you're saying it, it invaginates the membrane of the cell yes. to yes. incorporate it into the cytoplasm of the cell. And that's Dr. Suzuki's research. So my thought was initially, whenever we encounter a new receptor, um, you think, well, what can make it work more and what, can, what blocks it? And interestingly, there's really, I only found one compound that was found to block the ACE2 receptor, and it was in a failed drug trial for ulcerative colitis. And I don't know why they, they stopped it. My guess is it was probably very bad. You don't really encounter things without ACE2 receptors. There are animals that have deficient ones, and they don't live long. So it seems that not having functional ACE2 receptor is very, um, is very bad for you. And interestingly, there are some drugs that you'll be familiar with that seem to promote activity at the ACE2 receptor including both um, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. So kind of a curious coincidence there. Or not. Or not. <laughs> so, so how does this all tie together? So I, I was fortunate to meet um, Dr. Suzuki in person. He lives only 45 miles from me. He works at Georgetown University, and I was able to collaborate with him. We found one other person who had written him, and his article is very hard to find, but people do find their way to him. And we were able to publish this as a sudden onset pulmonary hypertension after an mRNA vaccine. We were able to publish that in September of this year. But that's like two years out of date? It oh, it took it took that long just to get to this path. Again, my I have gratitude for being alive to be on this um on this uh, call with you. Um, initially, my prognosis was not even a survival of 18 months. So um, yeah, I'm just happy to make it this journey, but it's been that hard. And I, and I know you know why, which is it's just uh, the medical community and publications are not receptive to this. That is true. It's, there's, it's, a message it's an interesting, there's an, it's an interesting story too, in that there is a, a third author in the paper Dr. Natalia Schultz, who is a cardiologist pathologist, um, Ukrainian born, practices or works here at Georgetown. And she was able to show in pathology slides, uh, I think she was one of the first to show this, that so the cause of death if you have influenza is the lungs fill with fluid. What she saw in the cause of death in COVID was the blood vessels start in the lungs, start growing 
thickening and growing closed. They become narrowed and then they clot and then you die. Um, then it was found in. So that, so I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So that yeah. means it's, it's not the inflammatory debris and the respiratory distress like syndrome when, when COVID progresses. Correct. It seems to be uh, quite different. It seems to be a disease of the vasculature. It's not an airspace disease as it would be in traditional flu. But so all that ground glass opacity, that's the characteristic x-ray finding, is not immune debris. It, it's a vascular dysfunction. Ooh, I can't speak to that. So that that may be um, that may be different. So I, I will say, though, that when they look at people who were hospitalized in ICU with COVID, if they were to look at serial, if they were to do echocardiography, which is one of the ways of measuring for um, pulmonary pressures, um, 40 percent were found to have pulmonary hypertension and most of those patients died. Uh -huh. And then it's it's thought that up to 20% of COVID patients are getting some degree of pulmonary hypertension. And when an Italian study looked at patients who had long COVID were shorter breath with exertion, and they did the most precise measurement, which is right heart catheterization, where you measure the pressure directly, that 100% of those patients, it was a small series, but 25 or 25 had pulmonary hypertension. Hmm. And to circle back to that, that patient that I had right after I got my first vaccine, there was one thing I felt very odd about. A few things that were odd about COVID is one, when I went back through my textbooks, there's no other virus disease that acts the way this does. Um, there were stories of people kind of getting better, but then about days eight or nine, usually when you recover from a virus would just acutely die. There were interesting stories of turning patients in the ICU, which is normally, it takes manpower, but usually people don't die or code when you turn them. And so it, I came to realize a light bulb went off in my head because when I find with pulmonary hypertension, I found something very interesting. There are different positions. I don't like lying on a side. I'm most comfortable prone. I feel better if I'm lying on my back. I really don't like to be on my left side down. And just like I thought, aha, um, I, I can't tell you exactly physiologically why that is. It's probably because you're forcing all the blood through one lung. Gravity's um, will do that when you're on your side. But I thought, ah, uh, that's what happened to my patient in that one case um, who uh, didn't, didn't tolerate being on their side. So interestingly, another thing with pulmonary hypertension is when you intubate and ventilate someone, you are increasing the positive pressure in their lungs and you decrease the blood return to the heart. One of the things I find with this is I don't like sudden changes in position. Standing up fast feels very bad. Mm -hmm. And I think a whole lot of COVID physiology can be explained by probably damage to the pulmonary vasculature. That's interesting. I, between that and neuroinflammation, um, or, you know, basically inflammation as to where the spike protein gets to, which organ is yes. the of the spike protein. But we've talked about, it kind of makes sense, you know, myocarditis is now being better described. It looks like it may be happening up to 3% of people who've had the vaccine. But missed in all of this is like, well, what happens to the damage of the most vasculature in the body, the lung? And 
I think the reason it's been missed is it, it, you know, generally physicians aren't familiar with seeing this. Um, they'd never seen it happen acutely before. It's difficult to diagnose. By the time you meet the diagnostic threshold, you, you're probably on death's door. And my suspicion is there is a, a lot of people out there that probably have some degree of this, maybe not as bad as I got it, but that are finding themselves short of breath doing things that didn't bother them before. And I think there's probably a whole lot of this going on out there that has been missed. Um, so there are a lot of people looking for treatments for long COVID and long vaccine syndromes. And yes. um, that this is something that the medical community was completely unprepared to manage. And yes. that was in denial of for the longest time, which led us as kind of alternative medicine people. And I don't mean yeah. alternative meaning non-medical things. I mean, just, you know, not, not the message people, but, but the real, the reality of life people um, with open eyes, open minds to how to manage people when they have problems uh, and, and not ritualize it, um, looking for alternative methods. So how, how did you, how did you get treated when you figured out what this was about? Great question. Um, I I just had an intuition. I, I could tell that the referral specialists were not open to the idea that this was going to be vaccine injury. And I felt that this, because this was a novel problem from a novel therapeutic, that I'd have to do something different. And... I, I, <laughs> I, I, I did uh, alternative medicine. So I have a, f a friend that practices board certified in traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, when he first saw me, he thought, oh, you look terrible. You look ashen. That's how people describe me. And so I did Chinese medicine um, from the get-go. And there's good pharmacology behind it. And in that mix are things that are pulmonary vasodilators. And I would say within a few days of doing that, um, it took the pressure off my chest. And at least I could at least lie down. And I mean, it was so miserable. At least I had I could sleep. Um, I did an exhaustive search of things that would help. Perhaps it, on the theory that this was damage to the ACE2 receptor, what would help that receptor um, metabolize better and there are a few compounds that came out of mouse studies um, or rat studies and pulmonary hypertension that um, mitigated the damage um, in those models um, and so two of them i mentioned before i took a third one and that seemed to i got back to um, mountain biking after that um, but i had sort of slow steady improvement over a year and, um, I mean, although, I mean, again, very limited compared to what I could do. It was hard for me just to be on my feet for a few hours a day. Um, at the year mark, I thought, you know, I may be one of these first cases that have ever reversed. Um, but my echo at one year showed there, there had been no improvement in the pulmonary pressure. So that was demoralizing, but clearly I'm able to do a lot more. So there's more blood flow getting through the lung. 
And I think the way I can explain that is in that one study I cited in long COVID is when they looked at patients who had long COVID, they did the heart catheterization. They followed them over a year and over a year, they actually symptomatically got better and they followed up and they found their pressures had not improved at all. And so the only way you can explain that is if the right heart got stronger, which used to be considered a bad thing. But I think in this case, it's if, if your heart doesn't get stronger, you're not going to do well. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're actually at another commercial break point. So let's take a pause here and we'll come back very shortly. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Robert Sullivan. We were just talking about how the treatment for pulmonary hypertension and the lack of what I would call, I guess, physician engagement with if this were uh, vaccine related, why would they or wouldn't they consider things that address the, the vaccine physiology and that you had used traditional Chinese medicine um, and other things, I guess, supplements and, and whatever, um, that seems to have helped you physiologically, if not by changing the pressure, but allowing your your the right heart to to become stronger over time with Precisely. with That's its exercise. I'm, I'm wondering whether you would this. It was probably before people started thinking about 
getting rid of the spike protein, metabolizing the spike protein, what what chemicals, compounds, yeah. uh, things would do that. Like today, uh, we know Peter McCullough and others are using natokinase-related yeah. supplements to do that. He uh, feels that he has good results with, you know, with the benefits, uh, symptomatic benefits for, for people. I don't know that they've had pulmonary hypertension, but they have other spike-related syndromes that he thinks has have improved over two to three months on, on on these supplements. There's a good reason to think that that works. I did try do a trial of natokinase, but that was later. Um, this happened to me so early in the thing, and the again we were the first round. We didn't think to check a D dimer at the time. I had a sense that this could be due to clotting, microclot. So. I, I definitely did not have any clots in the traditional sense. I had a high-resolution pulmonary angiogram, which was totally clean and normal. I did take aspirin just on the outside chance that there could be some clots. Um, we are aware of a case from Japan that was published where someone presented with the same symptoms as me. They did a D-dimer. It was elevated. That person, they anticoagulated, and they got better. I think you can have microclotting that can cause this. I think you can have vascular overgrowth that can cause this. Um, or a combination of the two. These aren't mutually exclusive. My, uh, the other person in my case report was on blood thinner and didn't improve on it at all. And interestingly, the uh, second case in the case report did the traditional route with um, uh, Western medicine. Um, and there are three classes of medicines you can take, one of which is phenomenally expensive. I think it's $12,000 a month. And again, partially for me, I just, uh, one part intuition, two parts anger. I didn't want to be dependent on a drug that was going to bankrupt me um, for the rest of my life. And it's it's hard to argue with results. I'm able to run again. I'm able to do the circus arts. Um, I still know something's wrong. And people look at me and think, you know, hey, um, what's wrong with you? You're able to do more than I can do. Um, but I, but I had a lot of damage and I have the vascular equivalent of losing a lung. I'm, I've, I mean, I carry, I had a lot of damage. Um, I live with compensated heart failure. Now, if I'm on my feet too long, I definitely notice it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, to your point, I think we're all been just sort of grasping in the dark and just trying things. Um, I found a list. There's at least 10 compounds out of Chinese medicine that are readily available that all have some theoretical basis. And the, the uh, biochemistry is being explained on how these things work. How do you know how much to um, take? Right. You're just guessing. You're just guessing. And part of what I do is I take one just to basically treat regret because if I worsen in the future, I'd feel bad if I didn't do something. Um, there are Whole, the basic science is about 20 years ahead of the clinical medicine on this. And there are other things on the horizon that um, could potentially be um, very effective. But I'm, I'm not going to say them on a podcast because I think the next thing is those will be um, hard to find. Right. You know, I'm not I'm not cynical now. Um, I, I think just to add one part to this that. Again, I, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, and I, I don't know if I'm going to sway anyone's mind, but I wish we'd stop the harm of doing this thera therapeutic, in quotes. But the, the thing I noticed was very interesting among athlete friends, including um, a cardiologist, was that many people noticed that their aerobic capacity 
dropped for a period of time after the vaccine. And that's unexplained. That's not normal after a vaccine. And I can envision that perhaps what is happening is that they're getting some degree of vascular damage to their lung that is impeding blood flow from the right heart to the left heart. Not enough to make a formal diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, but I see colleagues, patients, and athletes of some version of this almost on a daily basis. I don't think this is rare. I think it's a few percent at least. So actually, this was something that I proposed to colleagues and to a yeah. friend of mine whose son is a general manager of a, of a major league baseball team to measure pitching speeds before and after vaccination. Did they? No. Uh, if they did, happened. they hit it. I don't know. I think, you know, we've talked about it. You could probably measure it on uh, everything from crew teams. Um, I think it's coming out in Tour de France cycling trial times. It should probably be in military um, uh, uh, conditioning times, I would think. Um, but it, it is it is possible, and there's the theoretical basis based on Dr. Suzuki's work, that that there could be some degree of vascular damage and that, you know, are you getting better because it resolved or did you just get better because your right heart got stronger? And if you just, if you're, you know, if you damage maybe five or 10% of your vasculature, is this additive with each exposure to spike protein? And then there's a basis to think that might be the case. Um, you, this is playing with fire because generally pulmonary hypertension is not, readily treatable and it's progressive and fatal and but i suspect it's a different mechanism i suspect that normal so to speak normal pulmonary hypertension is a chronic condition that is a slow growth of occluding material in the, the the vasculature whereas here you had an agent itself that provoked a a as a stimulus an, an inflammatory or some other kind yeah. of compensatory mechanism to obstruct the flow. And yes. if there's something actually sitting there, then in theory, there might be something that could physiologically remove it or, or uh, you know, uh, work on it in, in some way, metabolize it, twist it, shape it, make it smaller, you know, something that... Um, it's different than just the cells getting larger, lining the vasculature, getting larger and, and gradually, you know, obstructing. Well, they multiply um, and they do it in a monoclonal fashion, apparently. And I know you do research on oncology um, and some of the treatments uh, that are very cutting edge involve chemotherapeutics. And mm-hmm. it, it's been demonstrated that you can selectively knock off the new ones that divided that shouldn't be there and preserve the native ones to a large degree. Um I, I don't think it's, you know, I, again, I thought if I had reversed it a year, I would have thought this was maybe some transient process, but, you know, I, I, I have the damage and I, I think, I, and I would like to believe it's reversible. I'm happy to be here talking with you, but it's probably not because the lungs, uh, the vasculature improved much, maybe a little bit, but it's probably from right heart adaptation. Yeah. But I, you know, if you, if I, I will say that, if this were to happen to you acutely and you weren't in really good shape, you're going to die. Um, if um, And so I can see how a lot of unexplained mortality could be traced to this. Um, 
if you have an acute compromise of pulmonary vessels, um, it, the moment you cannot recover at rest, you will die. Well, just I like, somebody just sent me yesterday some all-cause mortality data from Brazil showing yes. that, is, you, that it's up to 20% uh, higher excess mortality uh, in 2022 and so far this year compared to 2020, compared to 2019. What vaccine did they use? I, I'm ignorant. I don't know what they did. I think it was a mix. I think there's a lot of Pfizer, but I think they, they used others also. Interesting. So let me play, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Um, you are an anesthesiologist, so in yeah. theory, you are exposed chronically exposed to low levels of all those anesthetic gases that patients are given. So, yes. what are the occupational hazards from that, pulmonary wise? None that we know. The only one we've actually found is that anesthesiologists, uh, the men, have more girls. And that's true. <laughs> and we don't know why. So there's probably some effect from that. Um, most of our occupational exposure is radiation. Um, we're not aware of anesthesia gases causing pulmonary damage. Um, the other devil's advocate thing is I'm an asthmatic. I can't find any association between asthma and pulmonary hypertension. Okay. I guess I'm just doing differential diagnosis here. Sure. going. <laughs> So are you, are you completely back? Do you think of yourself as still doing most of the exercise that you used to do? Um, where's this left you? Not really. Um, it takes me much longer to warm up than I used to. Um, like working today. So I'm back to working. Um, I can make it through a full day. But after eight to 10 hours, I'll start getting some ankle swelling. And I can definitely feel the strain on the heart. Um, so just before talking with you, I had a prop my feet up and just lie down for a while. So I'm able to enjoy my life and do what I want to do. But it is a I have a constant reminder that there is something very wrong, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. I mean, I think even subtle things that are there, even if they're not limiting a person, the fact that you feel something that's always there is telling you yeah. that there's something wrong, you know, so it may not limit you, but it's annoying your psyche. I appreciate you understanding. Yes. That is correct. So have you tried hypnosis? <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of yoga. Um, and of course, the circus arts are very related to that. Those are and called distractions, right? Distractions work, work pretty well, too. Well, it's it's. I would say the yoga is the opposite of a distraction. That's definitely being in the moment. Okay. Uh, and I know that's something that most physicians really struggle with. Um because the delayed the delayed gratification that it takes to become a physician is not normal, and uh, we are all expert at distractions. Um, but um, I had a side story, but we're probably out of time. <laughs> we have a few minutes. I was going to ask um, how you feel. How did you feel about the messaging? So you took the vaccines probably because. They were mandated um, and because you didn't have any major reasons to think otherwise, probably at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had concern of it. It was not quite mandated um, at the time we did it. I will say it didn't meet anywhere near the conditions of informed consent. 
my worry was that perhaps like this antigen was going to pop up, like you're the factory for this. And my worry was that it was going to pop up on muscle cells and perhaps cause inflammation of muscle myositis. And interestingly, I have not seen that. That doesn't, I mean, I'm sure that case is out there. Um, I, I had a sense that there'd been two trials of mRNA vaccines, I think for Zika and for rabies that had failed. Um, and that this thing was widely distributed through all tissues. So I, I was wary, but again, like we were dealing with sick COVID patients and, um, you know, the messaging, you know, it was in retrospect, not as dangerous as it was, we were led to believe oh, in the, the illness. That's right. The COVID is an illness. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I speak of this very calmly, but you can imagine that I have a lot of anger and frustration um, over feeling grossly misled. I feel we're absolutely let down. I feel the VAR system um, is completely ineffective, that it's certainly not going to, it's not set up to catch. It's a novel therapeutic. We should expect novel complications, and it's clearly not uh, designed well, Bears is a is a limited hangout theater piece. It's it's there to be an excuse to say that we're doing something, but it actually has yeah. no function. Yes, yes. Silly I know that now. I know that now. Um, yeah. So I speak about it calmly, only because I, I will lose my composure if I think too much about it. Well. I spent four years of, of feeling that way myself over all the damage from all the people who've contacted me and all everything that I've seen over this and all the people who've lied about it on camera and off and, and so on that, uh, you know, everybody, it, it's like everybody is a true believing puppet of the level below the puppeteer and each puppeteer in this system is a true believing idiot for the puppeteer above them. And, <laughs> and the public health as a whole failed because, yes. because the people who go into public health by and large are not that smart and because they didn't get into medical school. And that's not true for everybody, but it's a joke. But, but anyway, and, but they weren't in control that the management of the pandemic a week or so after the emergency was declared was given over to the national security council and it became a security issue and therefore a bioweapon issue with countermeasures not vaccines countermeasures and so all of the the things that public health knew from the respiratory uh, you know, flu uh, management from pandemic from the Inglesby and Henderson paper from 2006 or so um, went out the window. That they just turned around and did the exact opposite for reasons only completely known to to the security state. And what I hypothesize, of course, that it was they were covering up to, because they made the virus in the first place, um, and they were covering up their involvement. But in in any event, so it's not necessarily appropriate to blame the public health institutions themselves except insofar as when they people would provide them, here are the data showing how wrong you are. And they say, I'm not talking to you and goodbye, instead of ad addressing it, that their fear levels were probably so high themselves that they couldn't bring themselves to, to talk about things. And so this was, you know, an orchestrated tyranny from the very top. And the question is, who are the independent players in this 
people like Fauci and Collins and you know and, and their level and above Burks and and others that were really in control and who of them were really forced into having to do what they did for, for whatever reasons I mean they could have just stepped down said I'm not doing this but they didn't so it's this is these are moral issues that we haven't really even begun to sort out the moral culpability of who did what. You know, it's sort of like the Nuremberg trials as to the middle-level people. How do you deal with the middle-level people, not the, the 21 people at the top who were executed, but but all the rest of the people who participated voluntarily or semi, semi-voluntarily in, in this debacle? And with, with that, now we really are out of time. So- well, I, I find that an absolutely articulate um, analysis. And I agree. It's the best we can we can do with the knowledge that we have at the moment. I, I would say there's so much human wreckage out there, and it's it's heartbreaking when one really, really contemplates it. That is true, and um, that's why we try to fix people the best we can, given what we have to work with and our imaginations and our wisdom when those things are allowed to, to run. I mean, you know, in medical care today, the, the independent practitioners are very few, but those are the people who are willing to do what they think is right and not follow the, the scripts that, that are being forced on, on everybody because by the managed system. In any event, um, we'll have to do more on an, uh, talk more on another occasion because we're out for today, but I hope everybody's enjoyed the conversation. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. So, Rob, thank you very much for for doing this conversation with me on, on very little notice. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and please come back again next week. <laughs>